Jesus is is preparing for the events of Holy Week in these chapters from John's Gospel that we have been looking at over the last couple of weeks. He's giving instructions, he's engaging in prayer, he's explaining things, and in the middle of it all, he's talking about the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit will explain things, he says. The Spirit will testify, will prove the world wrong, will bring the truth into focus. Jesus describes the Spirit, and he names the Spirit. In the, King's, in the King James Version, the name he gives for the Holy Spirit is Comforter. It's interesting because when we hear the word Comforter, we may think about being wrapped in care, or being held, or, or kept warm, or having our, our tears wiped away. And no doubt there are expressions and occasions of God's presence doing all those things, giving care, keeping warm, wiping away tears. But in this scripture passage, the name comforter sounds to our ears to be a mismatch when it is set alongside the described spirit actions of truth-telling and testifying and proving the world wrong. And so it shouldn't be surprising that the word that the King James translators translated from the Greek word parakletos, this word they translated into English as comforter, is a word that more precisely means one called alongside of for help. One called alongside of for help. And with that in mind, then, it makes sense that the other more modern translations use other words instead of the word comforter to name the spirit in these verses. Words like companion or friend or helper or advocate. Parakletos, one called alongside of for help. So I suspect that the translators of the New Revised Standard Version, for example, chose the word advocate as the English translation of this Greek word because it fits with the rest of what Jesus is saying in the passage. That is, it fits with the function of the Spirit as he describes it. It fits with what might seem to be a courtroom feel when Jesus says, the advocate will prove the world wrong, about sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will guide you in all truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. One might say it sounds like a lawyer in a courtroom. The advocate comes to help make the case. And yet I don't really think that even if Jesus is using what sounds to us like courtroom language, he is actually talking about a courtroom, at least not in the way that our modern minds have formed such an idea. I think when Jesus is talking about an advocate, when he names the Spirit as the advocate, he isn't talking about a a courtroom advocate. What he's really talking about is a helper, A come-alongside-with-truth-and-affirmation helper. The Spirit comes not just to make a case about facts, but to offer help 
and support to the follower. And that would make sense in the broader context of these chapters in John's gospel, because throughout, Jesus is expressing caring concern about his followers. What will they do when he is gone? How will they hold up? How will they stay the course? What will keep them safe in this world? How will they maintain identity and integrity? Who will be for them? If you take the word advocate out of the courtroom setting, take it away from a a legal context, then what do you have? You have someone who cares enough to walk with, to stick around, to speak up, to stand up. You have someone who helps those who are overwhelmed and overmatched. You have someone who cares enough to accompany, to be a companion, to act as a friend. You have someone who sticks up for the person who needs someone to stick up for them. You have a stay-by-your-side helper. Now, who needs this kind of advocate? You might think that it is those who have no voice or no power. They need someone to speak up on their behalf. And that can often be true. But it might also be the person who needs someone not just to speak on their behalf, but to stand at their shoulder or to sit at their table as they speak up for themselves. It might not always be the legal expert that is needed, but the committed supporter. The advocate might be someone who simply lends their presence, who shows up in solidarity, who affirms the truth that is spoken by the person who speaks up for themselves. Parakletos, one called alongside of for help. Advocate, helper, companion, friend, ally, person in solidarity, person who accompanies, person who affirms, person who stands shoulder to shoulder, advocate, helper, companion, friend. In the traditional and familiar story of Pentecost, the story from the book of Acts chapter 2, the story of the Spirit coming as a mighty wind with tongues of fire and enabling people to each hear the good news in their own language, that story is a story of spirit power. But this story, this scripture that we are looking at on this Pentecost, is a story of spirit power presence. Yes, there is power in advocacy, in accompaniment, in truth-telling, but it is not the power of overwhelming wind. It is the power of unwavering presence. It is the power of simple and regular help. We are told that God is with us in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. If we say that God is with us in Jesus, might we also say that God is for us in the Spirit? Parakletos, one called alongside of for 
help. God for us. I think to be faithful disciples in this world, in the world, even as we're not of the world, we have a role to carry out of advocacy, of helping. We have to stand with, stand up, affirm the truth, face the powers of this world, advocate for another way of living, a way that humanizes others, that cares about what is just, that moves into action to make things right. Even that sacrifices our own safety and privilege for the sake of others who do not have such safety and privilege. We have to become advocates. Like the Spirit is an advocate for us, we have to become advocates for others. Advocates for humanization. Advocates of truth-telling. Advocates for the vulnerable. Advocates for those who need and seek justice so that they might have peace. Right now, I can't seem to get the people of Gaza out of my mind. Even though there was a ceasefire declared on Friday, and if that ceasefire holds, the story of the recent conflict will quickly move off of the front pages. And we all know that out of sight is out of mind. Even so, I can't seem to get the people of Gaza out of my mind, and I think and hope it will stay that way for a while, at least. I have not been there to Gaza, but I have been to Israel and to the occupied West Bank. I have seen the fences and checkpoints, the crowded streets of East Jerusalem, the ring of concrete walls and barbed wire barriers around Bethlehem, the constant stresses, the humiliations, and how separation and militarization dehumanizes. The ever-present soldiers with automatic weapons, the residue of unannounced but no longer unexpected midnight or early morning residential raids, the evidence of schoolchildren harassed on their way to school and their teachers detained at checkpoints. I am aware of these things from a first-hand perspective, and it does not take much to imagine the deep well of frustration and despair that such seeds have sown. And now I think of the wreckage of apartment buildings bombed, houses destroyed, children, civilians killed. I don't doubt that there are two sides in the sense of the political positions, two sides in terms of bombers and rockets, two sides in terms of the dead. But long before this current outbreak of violence, the idea that somehow it is okay to ghettoize over two million people in only 139 square miles in a place that is among the most densely populated places in the world, blockaded on all sides, no access to the sea, perpetually short of water, 800,000 people with no running water, perpetually short of medicine, electrical power, with no freedom to import or export goods, with three-quarters of that population living in utter poverty, that somehow the world has accepted that has allowed that, seems horrific. 
The push this past week was to stop the violence, the bombs, the rockets. That was important, of course. But what about this question? Who stands with people whose lives are being crushed day by day, every day, and not just in these attention-grabbing last couple of weeks? Yes, it was important to stop the violence of bombardment and death from the sky. But what about the daily violence of deprivation, of isolation, of a system of hopelessness, a setup of injustice? I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about that and wondering who advocates for children who are consigned to grow up in such circumstances? How is advocacy best done? What does it mean to be present to such things? What does it mean to help? The violence, the injustice, the injuries of this world are numerous, even overwhelming. But remember what I said last week. God is not finished with this world. So we aren't either. God's love is not finished with this world. The Spirit will move, and we set our sails to come along. The Spirit winds of advocacy and justice and transformative love need to blow some more, and we need to be blown along with them. And I think about that as I think about a a first-hand account by the father of three young children in Gaza that I read the other day before the ceasefire. This is part of what he wrote. I don't sleep at night in wartime. I sit vigilant next to Ali, Karam, and Adam. Their small bodies sprawled, limbs interlocking next to their mother, mother, Safa, on two foam mats. This way, when they are yanked from their sleep by the thunderous explosion accompanying the obliteration of a nearby building, their Baba is already by their side, ready to comfort them without a moment's delay. My kids won't feel alone for even a fraction of a second. When I write this, it is the tenth straight day that Gaza has been under bombardment from Israeli warplanes. Fear permeates every inch of Gaza City. This is not Safa's and my first time parenting during a bombardment. Ali, at 10 years, is living through his third war. It's seven-year-old Karam's second. Only three-year-old Adam is new to this experience. Each assault we face, I utilize lessons from the previous ones to help my family survive. When the first Israeli missiles started striking Gaza City on May 10th, Safa and I sprang into action. She pulled out the empty Coke bottles we had squirreled away, about 25 in total, and I filled them with water. If shrapnel or tank fire pierced the plastic water tank on the roof of the apartment building, we would have water to drink and cook with for a few days. Safa and I already ascertained the safest place in the apartment to withstand a bombardment after we moved in last year. We wanted to keep the kids far from windows which can shatter, shards slicing their skin, and also away from the heavy front door which can be blasted off its hinges and crush them. We settled on the living room in the corner furthest from the sole window, safer at least than the bedrooms which have two windows. Our beds don't fit in the living room 
So Safa and I prepared two foam mats, lying them side by side and grabbing the kids' pillows and SpongeBob SquarePants blankets. Safa tucked her prayer robe under her own pillow. This way, if we have to evacuate in the middle of the night, she can slip it over her nightgown before heading out to the streets. Beloved one, I say to her, your life is more important than worrying about modesty. I tried to tell her this, but she lifted her eyebrows at me with an indulgent half-smile that said, my husband, the non-believer. In the morning after breakfast, my usually rambunctious kids would know how to speak in hushed voices as their baba stretched out on the mats. It would be my turn to catch a few hours of sleep. The rest of the day, we sit together in the living room, the kids too frightened to play, Safa and I reassuring the boys that if one of us has to leave the room to use the bathroom, the other one will be right by their side. If missile strikes do start, I often try to take my family downstairs, joining other neighbors on the ground floor of the apartment building, knowing that when Israeli bombs drop on high-rises, the only survivors, if any, are usually those on the ground floor. This is our bombardment routine. I was keeping watch over my family in this way at 6, p- at 6 a.m. last Thursday, When explosions began rocking Gaza City, the missile strikes came so fast and furiously during the approximately three-minute assault, there was no opportunity to run to the ground floor. I have lived through three previous wars, parenting my children through those terrifying times. I have never lived through a bombardment such as this. Within another hour, I'd be loading my family into my car to drive to our apartment in Khan Yunus, a city in southern Gaza, where they would at least be safer than in Gaza City. I would grip the steering wheel as I passed government buildings or police stations that could be potential targets at any moment, resisting my instinct to speed down the eerily deserted streets, knowing that speeding itself could turn my family into a target. A few hours later, I would be back in Gaza City where I would have access to better electricity and internet upon which my work depends, answering a call from Safa who would tell me with relief, Fadi, the kids are playing. But first... I had to get my kids through those three endless minutes. Ali, Karam, and Adam were terrified. They just looked at me with eyes pleading to make it stop, waiting for me to do something to stop the bombing, to protect them. You are our hero, Baba, their eyes said. We know you can make this stop. Baba can fill bottles with water, stay up all night next to them, tuck a SpongeBob SquarePants blanket back around Adam as he kicks it off in his restless sleep, drive them to another city, which may very well be the next site of attack, try to disguise the shaking in his voice so that his kids don't realize how terrified he is as well. I can even implore parents in the U.S. to call on their elected leaders to stop unconditionally funding the country who is dropping those missiles, but no matter how much I have learned through assault after assault on the Gaza Strip, the agonizing truth is laid bare in their pleading eyes. Baba cannot make this stop. I can do nothing to keep my children safe. So writes Fadi Abu Shamala, who is executive director of the General Union of Cultural Centers in Gaza. He is an advocate for his children, a companion, a helper. But when he himself is helpless, I can do nothing to keep my children safe. Who is an advocate for him?
Pentecost is sometimes referred to as the birthday of the church. Might it also be thought of in terms of rebirth, being born again, being born of the Spirit. If so, then isn't it time for us to be reborn in advocacy, reborn in helpfulness, reborn as those who accompany, who stand in solidarity, who seek truth. The Spirit is God for us. Parakletos, one called alongside of for help. Are we in the world in that way too? Come, Holy Spirit, stir us in compassion, stir us to action. Blow in this world a wind, a presence, a helper for truth, for justice, for change. Amen.